13. I'll be reading verses 7 through 16. I realized last week I forgot to let you know we were out of town for about three days this, this past week at a, the Gospel Coalition conference, and it was a great time to hear God's Word. They preached the entire book of Luke in about two and a half days. I think there were 14 sessions on the book of Luke. It was like drinking from a fire hose, but it was wonderful. It was refreshing and encouraging. So thanks to those of you who knew we were going and prayed for us and uh, really appreciate that. Thank you for enabling us uh, to go as a church. We don't take that for granted that we get to go and be refreshed and hear God's word and learn about him from, from other men of God. I forgot an announcement. Um, Elena let me know uh, the church picnic is coming up very soon. She actually had a slide up there, was very kind, and put a slide up there for us. It's coming up Sunday, April 28th, East Riverside Park. It is the first picnic of the year, and it's a great time, so, woo! All right, look at that. What a great response. I love it. <laughs> well, what a great time that's going to be together. Um, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13, 7 through 16. This is the next to last message in Hebrews. I am... I'm, enjoying this, but I'm sad as it's coming to an end. But you know what I'm really happy about is that there's more of God's Word. Uh, there's, there's other books of the Bible that we get to go through as well. So let's read from God's Word. This is God's Word. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside of the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is good. It's profitable for instruction, for building up, for, for teaching us about you, Lord, for teaching us how to how to live in light of what you've done in our lives. Father, I thank you that every word is inspired by you, that we can be confident in your word when you command us that it's for our good. Father, I pray that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would empower me as I speak, that you would empower all of us to hear from you, that you would open up our ears and open up deaf ears, open up blind eyes, that we might behold you. And as we see you, I Father, I pray that we would have hope in your promises. God, I pray that you would bring not only the gift of conviction, but I pray that you would bring encouragement this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
few years ago, actually many years ago now, about 20 years ago, my brother-in-law gave me a little book. It was called uh, The Life of David Brainerd. It was a wonderful little account based on David Brainerd's diaries. In case you don't know who David Brainerd is, he was a missionary to the Northampton area outside of Massachusetts. That doesn't sound like a mission field, but back then it was a mission field. About 20 minutes outside of, oh, I'm sorry, 20 miles outside of Stockbridge. Back in that day, it would have been more than 20 minutes. Uh, if you're riding a horse, that would have been a long, long trek. Um, he was a missionary to Native Americans in that area. They didn't, he didn't speak the same language. He had to learn the language. The customs were different. They were, they were considered hostile to the gospel. That wasn't a place that people really thought of going to preach the gospel. David Brainerd went. He was at 14. He was orphaned. Um, he, he schooled himself. He was a very brilliant young man. He got into Harvard. He got out of Harvard. I'm sorry, into Yale. And after about three years in Yale, he got kicked out because he stood up to one of the professors in Yale and was making comments about he wasn't sure they were really a, a believer, really a Christian. Yale had originally been founded as a Christian school. And yet there was a great awakening that was happening amongst the students in Yale. And they were actually living for God. Um, for real. <laughs> and, and so they were challenging their, their professors who were teaching them about God, but giving no evidence of living for God. And so he challenged his professor and got kicked out of Yale. And at 25, he devoted himself to missionary work to the Native Americans. He preached the, the gospel to these Native Americans in very difficult conditions. What do you have to know about David Brainerd is, as a young man from probably about 19 or 20 on, for the last 10 years of his life, he suffered from tuberculosis. And Tuberculosis makes it pretty difficult to do much of anything. And yet he had great faith and confidence in God. And so in the midst of trials and difficult conditions and cold and deprivation and not having much to eat, he, he went and he preached the gospel. And, and several hundred Native Americans evidenced living for God and not only professing faith, but evidencing that they really had been changed. Their lives had been awakened by the good news as well. He was only in ministry for four years. It's a striking thing about him. He died at 29, or right before his 30th birthday, in the house of Jonathan Edwards, and that's how, why we know about him today, is because Edwards took his diary, most of his diary, and wrote about the account of David Brainerd and his life. Edwards was so impressed with his friend that he wrote a biography of Brainerd. So many people around Brainerd were impressed with him when he got kicked out of Yale for the right reason, a bunch of his friends actually went and started this little school. It's called Princeton now. Another one of his friends went and started Dartmouth, and another one started Brown. They actually were all started as Christian schools back in the day, but they were so inspired by the life of David Brainerd, they went on to start these other schools. They saw him as a leader, even though he was dead. They saw his example of faith. Now, he wasn't a perfect man. He was, suffered from depression and other problems, suffered from maladies. He was continually discouraged and battled discouragement throughout his life. But he was a model of what does it look like to live a life by faith. And he was an encouragement to so many. And I encourage you, if you haven't read The Life of David Brainerd by Jonathan Edwards, please go out and do so. You see, reading about someone who's lived a life of faith like David Brainerd did, it's compelling. Seeing how the grace of God was at work in him in the midst of him coughing up blood and he's going out into very cold temperatures and in Massachusetts and preaching the gospel in wintertime, not having a tent to sleep under and sleeping on a mat. He was sustained by God's grace. He was sustained by God's grace through severe depression. 
and struggles, but yet he always had faith in God. And so don't imitate his depression, but we can imitate his life of faith. It's a compelling life. And as we come to this little letter to the, to the Hebrews that the author is writing to, he's writing and he's pointing them back to something similar. He's saying, remember your leaders. Remember those who've gone before you. Consider the outcome of their lives. Don't do exactly what they did, but remember the outcome of their lives. And why do you remember them? For the same reason that it's good for us. And I can encourage you to go and remember David Brainerd. It's because... It's inspiring to see the life of faith and then it makes you want to imitate that life of faith. It makes you want to have that same kind of faith in God that he had and that other leaders have had. He's not the only one. Fortunately, there's so many examples of people who lived as heroes of the faith despite their flaws. If you remember in Hebrews earlier, it talked about a chapter, really, that chapter 11 was all about heroes of the faith. Abraham, a great man of faith. But Abraham was seriously flawed. It doesn't say go and do what Abraham did and lie to people about this is really my sister and instead it's really his wife. But you can imitate the faith that he had. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's encouraging that. He's wanting the original readers to be inspired. He wants them to be compelled to see that in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of hard circumstances, in the midst of suffering and trials, sound familiar? Any of you suffering, trials, difficulties, relational problems? In the midst of these things, the author of Hebrews, he's, he's calling us and drawing us to see that we can live a life of faith by the strength of God's grace and in response to God's grace. And so he's pointing to do that. And really, that's the main idea we're going to unpack this morning is that we're to live a life of faith by the strength of God's grace, not by your own strength. If you are like David Brainerd, who was very weak, he didn't live by his own strength. If you are like the leaders that this author is pointing those in Hebrews to, they didn't live their lives, that the outcome of their lives was not successful because of their strength. The outcome of their lives was successful because of where and who they had faith in. They had faith in God who was always faithful. They had faith in the grace of God. And that's what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. You're like, how in the world? What are, how do these verses relate to each other? If you're first reading these verses, they can seem very unrelated. But let me encourage you, they're not unrelated. What he's what he's trying to communicate is that to live a life of faith by the strength of God's grace, not by your own strength, by the strength of God's grace and in response to God's grace. Live a life of faith by the strength of God's grace in response to God's grace. Look in verse seven. Look down in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody around you. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith what he was calling them to, what the Holy Spirit is calling us to. He was just calling us to live a life of faith in God's word. He was pointing them back not to, remember your leaders who talked to you about good business practices. Remember your leaders who talked to you about how to live healthy. Remember your leaders who coached you on your life. No, remember your leaders who did what? Who spoke to you God's word. Why? Because that was the place where they had faith. They had faith in God. They had faith in God's word. So when he says, remember your leaders and imitate their faith, what is he talking about? He says, Remember those who spoke God's word to you. That's where their faith was. That's where your faith needs to be as well. In this life, it can be very uncertain. When I wake up in the morning, I automatically have this little voice in my head. I don't know if you ever had this happen. You wake up in the morning and you're, you're in a bad mood. You're just grumpy. Or you're tired. Or you don't feel like getting up. Or you're dreading the day to come because you know what's in store. Or maybe you had an argument with your spouse or your friend or your neighbor or your coworker, and you remember that first thing. 
Maybe when you first wake up in the morning, you remember how you failed. You remember those words. Those words are in your head. Maybe the words of your past and your parents, or your friends, your family, maybe those words come into your head in the morning and you don't have confidence to get out of bed. And what he's saying is, in order to imitate the life of faith, these are the people who spoke God's word to you. We need to live a life of faith in God's word. He's calling to remember these people who had lived an exemplary life, not because they were perfect, not because they didn't fail, but because they had faith in God. And that sustained them. He says, look at the outcome of their lives. The people who told God's word to you, they lived by God's word in faith. And he sustained them. Consider the outcome of their lives. They're not told to imitate exactly what the leaders did. I want to discourage you from doing that here. Don't, don't dress like Aaron. Don't dress like me. Don't, don't start doing mannerisms. Apparently I go like this. I didn't know that. Apparently I go like this. And I have other kind of, don't start imitating those things. That's not what, that's not what the Bible is talking about. It's, but it's saying imitate their faith. Imitate their life of faith. All people are flawed and fallible. But let us consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You see, the, the people he's talking to, they died in faith. And they're encouraged that you too are going to be enabled to endure. You too are going to be able to live a life like this if you imitate the place that they had faith in. If you imitate their faith in God's word, you too will be able to endure and be sustained through these difficult times. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, and you're thinking, well, what in the world? How does this relate? He says to imitate their faith, and then all of a sudden, it seems like this sudden shift into reverse. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, it's not. It, it's, it's relative. It, it relates to it. It's relevant, is what I meant to say. Sorry. What he's saying is that this Jesus Christ, who your leaders believed in, he was the same then as he is today, the same leader the same, same person your leaders were sustained by yesterday is going to sustain you today and he's going to sustain you forever as well. See, Jesus Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we can have confidence in imitating our leaders and imitating their faith because Jesus Christ was at work in them yesterday. Jesus Christ will be at work in us today and he's going to be at work in us forever. That's what we have faith in. That's the object, the place of our faith, the place of our hope. Our hope is not in the fact that we're unchangeable, that we never fail. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus never fails, that he's unchangeable. He never changes yesterday, today, forever. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. What he intended for them to get was that Jesus Christ is the one who saved their leaders. Jesus Christ is the one who enabled them to endure. He's the one who enabled them to live a life of faith. And Jesus Christ is still the same. The one who enabled them to endure by faith is the one who will enable you today. And he's the one who's going to enable you tomorrow and the next day and forever. He'll save you. He'll enable you to endure. He'll enable you to imitate their life of faith today. And so lest you forget, not only is he the same yesterday and today, he'll be the one forever that sustains all faith. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but when I get up, I don't, I don't feel like this great man of faith. <laughs> I lack faith. And my confidence is not that in imitating their faith, I can imitate their faith because I, I can just have the same faith they have. No, my confidence is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to enable me to have faith in him. In the remaining verses, he explains how to live a life of faith. What does it look like to imitate the life of faith? And so that's what he's doing in the rest of these verses. He's saying, 
Here, imitate the life of faith of your, of your leaders, trusting in God's word and the fact that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he shows us what does it look like to imitate this life of faith? What does it look like practically played out to live this life of faith? So the second point we're gonna look at this morning is just coming right from the second verse in our passage. It's don't be led away. Don't be led away. He's encouraging them, don't be led away. He says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Don't be led away by all these different teachings that are really weird, that are strange, that are bizarre. Today, we can be tempted to be led away by all kinds of diverse and strange teachings. They can even come under the guise of of Christian teachings, like this is a better way to live. This 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 is the way that Christians should eat. This is the way that Christians should exercise. You know, there's, there's various diets and things out there, and they call themselves the maker's diet. And I'm not anti-maker's diet, by the way. But that's not the maker's diet. This is not the way that all people should live. This is not like one God-endorsed way. That's a strange teaching about food. And he's talking about there. Don't, don't, don't give in to thinking that my hope lies in doing life this way. My hope lies in... And if I eat these certain kinds of foods, or if I drink these kinds of drinks, or I take these kinds of supplements or oils or whatever it is, if I do these things, then suddenly it's our hope can shift and be in, in strange places, uh, strange places, strange teachings about food. And so they were tempted in the same ways we are, right? Very relatable. They were, they were probably taught that if you eat these certain dietary laws, you eat, eat in accord with these dietary laws, that then God will bless you. He's saying, don't, don't listen to that. Be led away by strange and diverse teachings about food. Like the letter to the church in Hebrews, the people today were all tempted to be led away by all kinds of strange things. The Hebrew people, they were tempted to go back to trusting in the law. And I think that's part of the context here. Trusting in the sacrificial system, saying that if you wash your pots and pans in a certain way and you eat certain foods and abstain from certain foods, then you'll experience God's blessing. And, and no, he's, he's disabusing that notion. He's saying, no, we've been set free from the law. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. Don't be carried away with adding to what God's done in your life. One of the real challenges they faced was to give up, to compromise in the face of pressures around them. But what became societal norms? We're tempted to compromise in the same way too. When, when all of your friends around you are doing a certain thing or acting a certain way, there's a lot of pressure there. And when they become so excited about this certain new thing they've latched onto, you can subtly shift your hope from the gospel subtly to this new diet, this new exercise plan, this new way of doing things. And your hope can subtly shift. You can subtly be led away by diverse teachings. And so he's encouraging the church there, and I believe that's God's word for us today too. One of the real challenges they faced was to give up in the face of pressure and persecution and difficulty, rejection, suffering. Remember, these people have had their possessions taken away from them. They were thrown in jail for a belief in Jesus. They're persecuted for the faith in Jesus Christ by the Hebrews and by the pagan world around them. You might be persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ by people who call themselves Christians. You might be persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ, not only by Christians, but by the world around you. They may make fun of you. It might be subtle forms of persecution. It might be mocking. You might lose your job. You might not get promoted. You might, your neighbors might hate your guts because you just believe in Jesus. They were persecuted for their faith. 
And you know what? The reason why they're persecuted for their faith is because they were living as disciples of Jesus. And if we are living out loud, if we're living openly, if we're living our lives unashamed, unabashed for Jesus Christ, I think we're gonna experience some similar kinds of trials, of troubles, of persecution. People are gonna think you're weird. They're gonna think you're different. They're gonna think you're odd. You're strange. And he's saying, no, don't be led astray by diverse and various teachings. You'd be tempted to live for your Christian family members who think a little differently than you. Tempted to live your unbelieving friends, your coworkers. You're gonna be tempted to live to be acceptable to people around you instead of being acceptable to God. The people who this letter was written to, they were tempted to fit in with the Greco-Roman culture around them or they were tempted to fit into the Hebrew culture and they found themselves in neither place. They didn't quite fit in everywhere. The Greco-Roman world would have said that if you only confess that Jesus is just another God, we're cool with that. As long as you don't say he's the only way, Actually, the first disciples just called themselves members, followers of the way. And then they were later called Christians, people who were Christ-like ones. The question is, how are we living our lives? Are we living our lives in such a way that we're not led astray and that it's clear that we're imitating the faith of our leaders? We are following Jesus. We're trusting in his word. Are we tempted to be led astray to, to downplay our Christianity? Say, well, no, Jesus is just one way. He's not, not the only way. We're tempted to say that he's not the only way, that it's okay to believe in Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or secular humanism or some other ism. We're tempted to live in a way that says that Jesus is just the way for me because I don't want to offend. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to curse some kind of suffering. Otherwise, people wrongly think I'm, I'm judging them. And we don't want to be judgmental. We're not, we're not to be judgmental. We're to be light and salt and love. But the only way to be light and salt in the world is to proclaim the truth, not to condemn, but to rescue, to save. So let's not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. The people letters written to, they're likely tempted to be led away by believing they couldn't be accepted by their fellow Jews unless they kept the sacrificial system and they kept the law. But you see the problem with that, the problem of Jesus plus anything else, is that it says that Jesus isn't good enough. If you have to live a certain way and dress a certain way and look a certain way and act a certain way and talk a certain way in order to really be accepted by God, then what you're saying is, Jesus, your sacrifice wasn't really truly enough for me. I need more. He's saying, don't be led away by these strange, these diverse teachings that will lead us away. The Greek and the Roman cultures around them, not only did the Jews have some strange ideas about things to eat that came from the law, but the Greeks and Romans had some real weird ideas about food too and you had the Epicureans, and you had people who believed in, in indulging greatly in food and then vomiting it up afterwards. You had people who were Stoics and who didn't believe in taking pleasure in anything, and the other people who believed in, in certain diets that would be the way that they should live. And if you don't have to look very far today to tell you, somebody to tell you what kind of food to eat, what kind of food to avoid, as if it will save you. Now, I'm all for eating healthily. I have higher cholesterol, so I'm eating healthily to lower my cholesterol. So we're not, we're not called to be dumb. You know, don't go out and eat 16 cheeseburgers and five pounds of bacon in a day. You're probably gonna die pretty quick. But it's not saying that. What it's saying is don't be led astray to subtly put your confidence, your hope, 
and even your diet and the food you eat. If you only consume this supplement, this herb, or this plant, or this oil, it's going to save you. If you avoid GMOs or avoid trans fats, high fructose corn syrup, gluten, or something else, that's going to save you. Well, there may be some wisdom in those things. And so we do some, we eat healthy and we eat lots of fruits and vegetables and those types of things. But that's not our salvation. That's not to be any of our salvation. We're not to look to those things for hope. It can suddenly become a different gospel where we're led away. And that's not new. You know why? Because we're all humans and we're tempted by the same things. We're tempted to want to earn our own salvation or in some way contribute to it or in some way say, we've gotten this, we've done this. We're all tempted to suddenly look for hope, <clears throat> hope outside of Jesus and place our hope in something else, some man-made system. Neither trusting in, that, in the diet, so the sacrificial system of the law, nor trusting all those strange teachings in those days, he says it doesn't lead you to Jesus. It doesn't strengthen your heart. You have all these weird teachings about food, but it might strengthen your body, but it doesn't strengthen your heart. And he's not talking about your, your blood vessels pumping because, you know, if you don't eat a lot of fat, you might have a stronger heart. What he's saying is your heart, the motives, the inner person, it doesn't ultimately do good to you because it leads you away from where you should have confidence and faith in Jesus. That's where you're going to, it's going to do the most amount of good. It's going to strengthen your heart as you trust in his grace. And instead, really the third thing I want to draw your attention to, what the author is drawing our attention to in this passage is, is to feast on God's grace. So eat healthy, sure. We're not going to become an obese church. I don't want to encourage that or to be unhealthy in our habits or practices. But here's where I really want us to feast. Here's what's way more important. Feast on God's grace. May you be more concerned with feasting on God's grace than anything else. And so he says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What in the world is he talking about? See, he's writing to people who understood the Old Testament sacrificial system, understood things and understood what the law said. In our context today, I don't know what the heck altar he's talking about, so we need, we need help to understand this. So he points us to the altar that we have, and if you understand the Old Testament sacrificial system, the altar he's talking about He's talking about the place where they would go and make sacrifices for sin. And see, there's only one altar that they weren't allowed to eat from, and one, one type of sacrifice where they weren't allowed to eat, and that was the sacrifice from the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was one day a year that the, the, high, the high priest, he would sacrifice a bull and a goat, and he would then lay hands on this bull, lay hands on the goat, and send them outside the city. They would sacrifice them and then burn up the sacrifices outside of the city to, so that they would not let any remnant come back into the city. So they weren't to touch it. They weren't to eat of it after that. Every other time, God would provide for the priests that they would actually eat part of the sacrifice for all the other sacrifices they had to be made. But they, there's one sacrifice. He says, those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That was the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. What's he saying here? He's talking about the fact that we have an altar. We have an altar that people who still serve in the sacrificial system can't partake of, but we can partake of it. We can partake of the altar of the Day of Atonement. We can eat of it. We can feast on it. And how do we do that? What does it mean to feast on the, the sacrifice? When, does that mean literally eating Jesus? No, but it means we... we we take it him as our life. His death becomes our life. We feast on the altar of the Day of Atonement. You see, Jesus went and offered himself 
as an atonement, a, a sacrifice to make us one with God, at one with God, to, to remove our sins from us. All of our sins were placed on Jesus, and now he's been completely spent for us, but, but we can partake of him. So what he's encouraging us here to do is to feast on God's grace. Look in verse 11. It says, For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, they're burned outside the camp. God commanded them to take the animal as sacrifice and burn it outside the camp. Take no portion of the sacrifice back inside the camp. But that's not true for us. You see, where did Jesus go when they sacrificed him on the cross? He went outside of the city gates. He went outside of Jerusalem. That wasn't just symbolic. That was in fulfillment of the the, the ultimate day of atonement. You see, the, the whole sacrificial system, it, it foreshadowed the fact that somebody had to go outside of the camp to atone for the sins, to take away the sins of the people. And so what did Jesus do? He took away the sins of the people by going to Golgotha and dying in our place. Well, he was sacrificed, but now we can feast on God's grace. We eat of the sacrifice of Jesus. And, and really, when, whenever we partake of communion, that's what we're doing. See, why did Jesus command? Do this as, as often as you get together. Do this in remembrance of me. Take, eat. This is my body. What did he mean? He meant to feast on the fact that he was our atoning sacrifice. That he completely took the punishment for all of our sins on himself. So we don't experience shame and guilt any longer. He took all of our reproach on himself completely. He took all the punishment we deserve. Feast on his flesh. Remember, take, eat. This is my body. Then he talks about the blood and he says, drink this, this cup of the new covenant. What? In his blood. And he's talking about that day of atonement. That day of atonement sacrifice that he made, the once and for all atonement, that once and for all payment for sins where he took our place. Je- Jesus said in John six forty seven. you don't have to turn your Bibles, but you can write that down and just listen to the verse. It's John six forty seven. He says, truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, but he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This, and he's probably pointing to himself as he's saying this, is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. We have an altar that those participating in the sacrificial system cannot eat from, but that we partake of, and it's the sacrifice of Jesus. He says, I, in verse 51, am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And it isn't that good news. That's where our faith and our hope is. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That would have been offensive to them. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This, he said, is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What the author of Hebrews is doing is he's pointing us back to that that atoning sacrifice, to that place where Jesus, our great high priest that we've learned about all throughout the book of Hebrews, he performed the ultimate sacrifice on the ultimate and final altar. And he's pointing us to have confidence in there, in Jesus. Confidence in that sacrifice. Confidence to feast on him.
He's saying earthly food, strange teachings, diverse teachings about what you eat. That won't strengthen you. That won't give you the endurance you need to live a life of faith. That won't do it. Here's what will give you endurance to live a life of faith. It's feasting on the grace of God and Jesus Christ as food for your hearts. And his grace is food, he says, for the strengthening of our hearts. Look down in your Bibles in verse 12. It says, so also, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We're being called to see what Jesus has done. In saying that he suffered outside the gate, he's calling attention to that same day of atonement where the animal was sent outside the gate. He suffered outside of the city on the final day of atonement sacrifice. He went out. He carried all the sins of God's people on himself. He bore the shame, the suffering, the reproach of all mankind. Why did he do that? He did that so that everyone who believed in him could be at one with God. The sacrifice of the animals on the day of atonement, the high priest, he would would lay his hands on the animal. And he would, he would symbolically be placing all of the sins of the people on that animal. But it wasn't good enough because, you see, an animal could never pay for the sins of, of all mankind. An animal doesn't have the same worth as a human. And so it had to happen year after year, endlessly, forever, until Jesus came. And then God put his hand on Jesus and placed all of our sins on Jesus in our place and Jesus went outside the city and he died. When Jesus died for the sins of all those who placed their trust in him, he sanctified us through his own blood, not through the blood of another, not through the blood of an animal. He wasn't a high priest who took an animal and sacrificed that. He was the high priest who offered himself. So when it says the priests have no right to eat a sacrifice in the altar of atonement, He's conversely saying we find our food in the grace of his sacrifice for us. What are you feasting on this morning? What are you feasting on? Where do you find grace to sustain you? Do you find it on doing certain things, living a certain way, talking a certain way, acting a certain way? Or do you find the grace to sustain your weary hearts when you're discouraged and despairing and despondent and troubled and suffering and experiencing difficulties and relational problems? When you fail, when you sin, he encourages us to to feast on his grace. His His grace provides that strong motive to strengthen our hearts, to live for God. Fourthly, the author he's calling the original hearers to live by God's grace, and he's calling us to do the same. It's really simple. Just live by God's grace. Don't live by your efforts. Don't live by your own merits. Don't live by your own achievements. Placing your faith, your hope in him, live by his grace. How do we do that? Look in verse 13. Look down your Bibles for a minute. It says, therefore, in light of everything he's just told us, therefore, let us go to him. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. His His grace strengthens our hearts to not grow weary. His grace gives us the ability to bear the reproach that following his name it will bring us. And by the way, if you're truly a disciple of Jesus, people will reproach you. You will bear the reproach of people around you if you're truly living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So how are we to live? Let's go to him. Let's go to him by his grace. Let's receive from the place where he atoned for our sins, 
Let's receive his grace and bear the reproach he endured. Let your heart feast on the atonement of Jesus in our place and be strengthened by his grace. So what in the world does that look like? Fine, thanks, Matt, that's great, but what, is this, what does it look like? What does it look like to feast on the grace of Jesus' atoning sacrifice? What well, looks like really trusting that all of your shame, all of your shame has already been taken from you. He has already borne your reproach. It looks like not being afraid of what shame people can try to place on you because you know that all of your shame, all of your reason for being ashamed is placed on Jesus. Isn't that good news? It isn't that you don't have any cause for being ashamed. No, it's actually the reverse. Each and every person here has great cause for being ashamed on their own. You know it. You're aware. I'm sure there's something on your mind right now that you're, you're ashamed that you've done in the past and you're ashamed that you know was wrong or that you know was against what God has for you. We all have things we should be truly ashamed of. We've done or said or looked at things that we are right to be ashamed of. All things that we don't want to expose because they're shaming. But here, here's how you eat. Here's how you feast. Here's the truly amazing, astounding thing. Jesus knows and knew about all those things that we're so afraid about being revealed. He knew about all the things that we're so rightly ashamed about. And here's the good news, that God the Father, the most holy, righteous God, he knows about our shame and all of our nasty, ugly, dirty sin. And God's not comfortable with our shameful deeds and with the sins we should be ashamed of. He doesn't just say, oh, well, it's no big deal. He doesn't overlook them and say, yeah, I understand, whatever. No, he doesn't do that, actually. What did he do? His wrath burned against his son as the atoning sacrifice. He put his son on the altar and killed him so that we don't have to bear any shame. He was right to be angry at sin and the shameful things all humanity has done, defiling his name, disobeying him, thwarting his rule, thumbing our noses at him, doing the things he condemns. The whole reason a day of atonement was needed was that it's impossible for God to bear the presence of sin. There was no way for people to come close to him or be accepted by him without death, without an animal being slaughtered, but it wasn't sufficient. But we have a different altar. We have an altar where Jesus has been placed and died in our place. And it says that God so loved us, he God so loved the world that he gave up his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life because his son was the atoning sacrifice to bear all of our shame. Maybe you're struggling this morning with your past. Maybe you're struggling with what you've done or what you've looked at or what you've been involved in or what people have done to you and how they've shamed you. Let me encourage you, go outside the gate. Meet him there. Realize that he's taken all of your shame. We're not meant to carry that any longer. We're meant to place all of our shame on him. He bore your reproach. There's nothing worse that can be said about you. That can really free you up from worrying. What do other people think about you? It doesn't matter. You know what the worst thing that could be said has already been said about you? That not just Jesus came because he loved you, somebody had to die, the Son of God had to die because your sin was so heinous. That's a pretty condemning thing. But here's the good news. He was condemned in your place. So what's the worst that somebody can say about you? That's what it means when it says go outside the gate bearing the reproach. You can bear the reproach of Jesus' name now. 
trusting in his name, trusting in him, not fearing what people have to say about you because you're trusting in his name. You can bear the reproach that you will receive when you do that. If you live for Jesus, if you live this way, people are going to make fun of you. They're going to think you're dumb. Let's go outside the gate so that we might meet with God. Let's leave behind any attempt to earn God's favor or our performance. Let's leave behind any legalism. Let's go outside of all of that. Leave behind any confidence in ourselves or our merit. Go to him outside the camp. Follow Jesus outside of the camp. What is it telling you? It's saying go to him. Don't be afraid of bearing the reproach of Christ. Go to him and bear the reproach that will come from professing faith in him. What is this? It's really the call to true Christian discipleship. See Jesus. Have hope in his promises. He'll sustain you. You, He will enable you to bear his reproach. Why? Because he's already borne all of yours. It's the call really to take up your cross and follow him. This is a call to radical Christian life. Don't be complacent. Go to him. Identify yourself with him outside the gate. You see, the disciples, they were tempted when he first died to not identify themselves with him outside the gate. He says, go to him, follow him, go to him outside the gate. Identify yourselves with Jesus. Take up your cross, bear his reproach. Trials may come, suffering may come, but the leaders before you, look at the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. Rely on the grace of God. Rely on Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Saying, rely on the grace of God. Let it be your food. Don't go after strange teachings. Feast your life on God's grace and the grace that we've received in the atonement, the grace of God that says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. On the grace of God that was at at work in the life of our leaders who've gone before us and, and died in faith. And then in verse 14, it gives us the motivation for living by God's grace. Look down in your Bibles for a moment. It says in verse 14, for... Because, how, how can you live this way? What's the motivation for living this life of grace and faith in him? He says, for we, have here no, we here have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. His sacrifice outside of the city, it made it possible for us to enter into the city of God. Into the true and lasting place that God has prepared for his people the motivation for leaving behind the familiar, for leaving behind the comfortable life, for not trusting in anything else, for trusting in Jesus alone, for going to him outside the safety of religion, for going to him and living lives are acceptable to him and not to people. What's the motivation? He's saying we don't have a lasting city here. He's saying, wake up. This won't last. This is not a lasting city. Don't give your life for this. Don't be tied up with diverse and strange teachings saying that this is all there is and all you have to live for. He says we seek the city that is to come. If we're living for the here and now, as if this life holds all there is to offer, then let me tell you, you're going to get sucked into the trap of living for people. You're going to get sucked into the trap of living for performance and living for what you can get and what you can take from people. If you can forget that you have no lasting city here, you're going to forget to look to him and you're going to be tempted to look to things to satisfy you here. You can be tempted to look to relationships to satisfy you. 
grasp for ways to make this place our home. But church, let's be encouraged. We have no lasting city here. That's really good news, isn't it? Because when I look around at the city we have here, the city of man, it's, it's not encouraging. We have no lasting city here. There's hope. We can have faith. We have a city that is to come. And the Hebrews aren't the only ones who can look back and see the leaders and imitate their lives of faith. We can look back to people like William Carey. If you've ever read about him. He gave up the comforts of England in the early 1800s to reach India with the gospel. We can remember the faith of Adoniram Judson, who was a missionary to Burma. We can recall the faith of George Mueller, an extraordinary man of faith who lived by faith, and his orphanage cared in his own lifetime. His orphanage ended up caring for more than 10,000 children in his own lifetime. He had no funds to start the orphanage, and it was continually a life of faith that he lived. He wasn't a perfect man, but he lived a life of faith in God, by the grace of God. God's grace strengthened his heart. Remember the story of Eric Little who gave up fame and fortune after winning Olympic gold and he went to preach the gospel in China. He didn't die with notoriety. He died in a Japanese internment camp. They were all seeking a city that's to come. In light of the grace of God that we've received and knowing we have a city and a home prepared for us whose maker is God, how should you live? How should I live? How should we live? See, the author of the book of Hebrews has been trying to encourage them to live lives that are so changed by seeing Jesus, by seeing the sacrifice he's made for us. Live lives that are so changed by that that it's going to compel the world around you to see that we have hope. We have real hope in the grace of God, and the grace of God will sustain us. And then in verses 15 and 16, it tells us that we're to live lives of faith what does it look like? How should we live now? Live lives of faith demonstrated by a sacrifice of praise from our lips and sacrificial, sacrificial pray, love for others. And so the very last brief point we're gonna look at from these verses is we're called not only to feast on God's grace and live by God's grace, we're created to respond to God's grace. That's how these verses hold together. Look down in your, in your Bible in verse 15. It says, through him... Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. No sacrifice for our sin remains. There should be worship erupting. No sacrifice for sin remains. You don't have any reason to be ashamed any longer, not because you didn't do things, but because he bore all of your shame. You don't have to be condemned anymore because he's borne your condemnation. So what's the natural fruit it comes out of lips that know they've been redeemed by the grace of God. It's acknowledging his name. That's what it looks like to live a life of grace is to acknowledge the name of grace. Acknowledge the place, the one, the person who saved us and redeemed us. He went outside the camp. He died on a hill called Golgotha. If you think about it, that city was rightfully his. He was the heir, the son of David, the Messiah. What was Jerusalem called? The city of David, the city of the chosen one. This was the place where the Messiah was supposed to come in. Yet he died outside of the city, atoning for the once and for all, for the sacrifice, atoning once and for all for our sins, so that he could lavish his grace on us who deserve to be condemned. He died to give us eternal life. We have an altar that we can eat from. It's not trusting the sacrificial system. 
but through Jesus, let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Why? Because no other sacrifice remains. We don't have to pay. We don't have to pay. We don't have to earn favor before God. We don't have to be good enough before God. We can trust in his grace, and that alone should make us just erupt each new day and say, God, I'm a loser. I can't do it. I'm having a rough day ahead of me. I I failed. I, I blew it yesterday, and Lord, I have these problems and issues, but God, I give you my sacrifice of praise because, Lord, you've changed me. You've made me new. You're going to enable me by your grace to live for you. Because Jesus died on Golgotha, we can enjoy unlimited access into God's presence and offer up that praise to him that doesn't try to earn his favor, but praise that says, God, this is just the fruit of lips that acknowledge your name. He died outside of the city, his city. And we have a beautiful picture in the end of Revelation. Of he's gonna come back. And we have a city that's yet to come. A new Jerusalem. A new place that he's prepared for all those who have faith in him. And this same Jesus who died and was raised to life, the same power that raised Jesus to life and lived inside of those saints, that same Holy Spirit that lived inside of those saints that raised Jesus from the dead, he's the same yesterday and today and forever. Not only is praise an acceptable sacrifice, it says don't neglect to do good and share what you have. Here's the thing, if you're feasting on the grace of Jesus Christ and living in the good of the day of atonement of Jesus for our sins, it's gonna be seen with everything that you are, is what he's saying. You're gonna live lives like this. You're gonna live lives that are different. You're gonna do good to other people around you, not to earn anything, but because he's already earned it all. That's the kind of sacrifice that we make now. We don't make sacrifices in the altar anymore. We don't make sacrifices in the old sacrificial system. We don't give up certain foods or eat other foods. Thank God we can have bacon now in moderation, right? Um, The time of atonement for sacrifice has passed though. Jesus has made that once and for all sacrifice for us. Now the only sacrifice that remains are the sacrifice of praise and works of love. I want to give you a quote as we end and it's not there so I just have to ask you to listen and it's from a guy named John Piper. He says, when I wake up in the morning and feel guilty and defiled because of yesterday's ugliness, you ever, you ever wake up that way? You ever wake up feeling guilty and defiled because of yesterday's ugliness? I know I do. <laughs> when I wake up that way because of yesterday's ugliness and hopelessness because of yesterday's failure, my heart needs to be strengthened by two kinds of grace, not just one. I need the grace of forgiveness based on the great past substitutionary sacrifice on the cross the atoning sacrifice of Jesus that covers all my sins. Oh, how precious. And he says, and I need the grace of promised help from Jesus today and tomorrow. That's what this passage is telling us. If I can have forgiveness, if I can have the presence and the promise of omnipotent help from Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, my heart will be strong and I'll be able to carry on another day. He says, such is the glory of grace in the Christian life. If you do not enjoy the forgiveness of your sins or have hope that Jesus will give you all the help you need today and tomorrow, then I invite you to come. Come with me. Go outside the gate to the place where Jesus has paid for all of your sins. And then trust in him. Go ahead and ask the band to come forward and we're just gonna sing a song together. Go ahead and stand up too if you will.
how appropriate I thought it would be for us to end with a sacrifice of praise to him, singing of his amazing grace. So let's sing together.